Recovery Elevator, episode 41. You don't have to hit some spectacular traumatic bottom in order to decide to seek recovery. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to my Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker app on my phone, I have been sober for one year, two months, and three weeks. On today's podcast, we've got Eric. He's 25 years old, and he's from Massachusetts, and he's going to explain what it's like to be an alcoholic who's also gay. Before we get into our topic, which I am so excited, and I had a lot of trepidation to even broach or breach, whatever the word is, this topic, which is emotional sobriety. Let's hear from our sponsor, Sober Nation. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction as well to family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recent recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line, which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can be found at www.SoberNation.com. Once again, that's SoberNation.com. That's right. Our topic is emotional sobriety, a combination of words, which I understand what emotions mean and sobriety means, but I didn't know what they meant when I put those two words together. But emotional sobriety is the key to sobriety. This is the type of sobriety that you want to find after you get sober. Sobriety is what your physical state is after you're not drunk or you don't have any alcohol in your system. Emotional sobriety is that cloud that you can find yourself on, but it's a pink cloud that doesn't really have to go away once you discover this emotional sobriety. And I am fully on my quest to discover this emotional sobriety. Newsflash, drinking sucks and there must be an easier medical way to quit, but is it worth it? Today, Recovery Elevator, I want to introduce a concept I like to call the carrot and the stick of recovery. I like it because it is a reminder of why we are here, but it shifts the focus from the fear of drinking to the hope that is available to all of us after we quit drinking. Hope for a full, deep, and abundant life in recovery. What you might say. I thought recovery was just about not drinking. Guilty as charged Paul for about a decade. To that, I now say this, why would we define some things by what it's really not? Sure, recovery is a lot about not drinking, but then if that's what it is not, then what is it? Hang on with me a sec here, recovery elevator. This is going to be a fun one. I remember back when I was drinking heavily, I knew it was a problem. I was so desperately looking for any solution other than a 12-step based recovery program. Honestly, I thought if being sober just means don't drink, I liked the idea of taking something like an anabuse every day for the rest of my life and simply just not drinking. But I learned the hard way that's the dry drunk. The idea sounded like problem solved if I could just take a simple anabuse pill. But then again, you're just a dry drunk. Saying it now, it seems like a shallow and crude solution. But I think we can all admit thinking something along those lines while we were in the troughs of addiction It sounded pretty appetizing. Maybe some people listening to this are thinking that very thing. And let me tell you, you're not alone. Taking a face value, it sounds like a great idea. I don't know much about antabuse or those pills that just simply make you stop drinking or they make you throw up when you drink. But the point is, if drinking is the problem, there must be an easier way to fix the problem than spending a lifetime in a 12-step recovery program saying to yourself, one day at a time. I know that was a little confusing to follow. But basically, come on, science and modern medicine. You can cut your finger off and glue it back together 
like it never was cut off in the first place. I know you can solve or cure this alcoholism thing. And let me go back to drinking like a normal drinking dude. Oh yeah, scientist. And while you're at it, I'd like to ride a horse again. I live in Montana. There's a lot of horses. Being allergic to horses in Montana kind of sucks. So I would eventually one day like to ride a horse drunk because I can drink again normally after the pill that you are about to invent. Side note tangent, back to the topic. Now, I'm not endorsing or bashing these anti-abuse pills. In fact, I've never taken any. Why I actually never stood in front of a doctor and told him that the alcohol wasn't the problem, that I just need to do an anti-abuse thing, is a mystery to me. I can't believe I haven't done that yet. But the point is, my alcoholic mind is always looking for an easier and softer way to stay sober. But now that I've been sober for a short while, I can tell you how grateful I am that I found a different way to my alcoholic problems than just taking a pill. Hang with me here, I'll explain. You see, when I was drinking, and even when I quit by myself for about two and a half years, I didn't know how to enjoy life. I was irritable. I was generally discontent with every passing moment. I still felt like I had a lot to prove, but with every success validating my worth, I still felt, God, empty. Maybe some people listening to this can relate. It felt like there was a hole in my life that I couldn't fill. And now that I wasn't filling it with alcohol, there was still a massive hole, not even being temporarily filled. You see, now that I'm a little farther away from that time, I see that even though alcohol caused many problems in my life, it was actually the solution for even deeper underlying problems that I needed to address. I know your mind is blown. You might have just driven into a ditch right now because your mind just basically imploded on itself. Alcohol was a solution to my problems until it became the underlying main problem. With alcohol gone, sure, I got rid of the big daddy-o problem, but the root problems that led to my drinking once again, they surfaced. The thing is, I was afraid. I was the only one to see these problems. I was ashamed of my drinking. I felt lonely, inadequate, and isolated, and I was ashamed of these thoughts and feelings for a long time. It's funny how we alcoholics and addicts are so self-centered when we even think we're the only one in the world who feels exactly like we do. And because of that, we want to hide it. We want to fix it ourselves. And unfortunately, there's no sobriety pill, tablet, gum, or patch that can fix that. But I'm digressing. Back to the stick. So I held out going into recovery because I was looking for some magical medical solution that would be easier to follow or to adhere to than some 12-step program. In a nutshell, my drinking got worse, but I wasn't really drinking. But then when I did return to drinking, yep, that progressive part of it did get a lot worse. I got suicidal, even gave it a go one time. Out of desperation, I decided to give the 12-step program a chance. And that was right around September 8, 2014. The medical cure that I was seeking, it was going to have to wait. I was getting beaten by the stick of drinking. It was like a cane that was just beating me on the backside over and over and over. So I finally gave up my struggle to do it on my own, and I decided to enter that dreaded AA alcohol synonymous 12-step meeting. I told my story a little bit, talked to some other alcoholics, and I immediately found relief, and I found hope at these meetings. People there were generally happy. They're quick to laugh. They're hopeful, energetic, and caring. Some emotions that, hell, I hadn't felt for a long time were seen. One thing that I kept hearing over and over was keep coming back. Keep coming back. As long as I kept coming back and I started to work the 12 steps, got a sponsor, and I stayed plugged in, I had a chance to stay sober, which appeared to be their solution or this magical pill. So I kept coming back to stay sober, 
or that big stick of drinking might find its way out of wherever it was hiding and starting slapping me on the backside again. It's a good stick. You know, it's probably made of hickory or oak. Not like a friendly stick. I mean like a good, solid, sturdy stick you could build a Titanic out of if you had a couple hundred million of these sticks. And it probably be more malleable and pliable against an iceberg. But you get the point. I digress. After a while, I was delighted to find that somewhere along the way, my compulsion to drink had vanished. Seriously, vanished. Yet I know the stick is still out there waiting to come back. And it's a small price to pay to help minimize the chance of any relapse. I'm eternally grateful for this stick because my foundation all starts with not drinking. But here's the thing. By working this program in recovery, I'm starting to experience new and amazing things I didn't expect in life. When I got here, I just wanted to not drink. And the fear of drinking was enough to keep me plugged in. Now, I'm finding so much more in life that I ever expected. Some people say that first comes sobriety from substances and then comes emotional sobriety. And what I think emotional sobriety is, right here in a nutshell, it's the ability to deal with feelings in a positive way. It is the deep understanding that you know you'll be okay, so you allow yourself to feel the entire spectrum of feelings, and you don't try to cover them up with a substance, a.k.a. King Cobra 40, 2004 to 2006 Pablo. It's almost like a serenity that gives you the confidence knowing your feelings are just that, feelings, they're things, and you don't necessarily have to act on them. So you can feel good, or you can feel bad. But with an emotional sobriety, it doesn't matter. It's not going to lead you to the drink. Now, with only 14 months of sobriety, I am not claiming to be an expert on this. In fact, I know for 100% fact, I am not an expert on any of this. But already, it is so amazing to see the small glimpses of my life with this emotional sobriety. And here's three that I'll share with you right now. A couple months ago, when there wasn't this cape of ice on the ground in Montana, I was hiking. My mind was at peace, and while I was up in the mountains in Montana, resting at a pristine glacier lake, at the end of the hike, something strange happened. I realized, man, Paul, Pablo, you're kind of cool. You're an okay dude. I wouldn't mind hanging out with you. I liked myself, guys. For even just a fleeting moment, I was all about myself. I liked it. I was fun. I liked Paul. Personality, defects, and all. For that brief moment, it felt so good to accept myself as I am. I think that feeling of self-love is part of emotional sobriety and is something we can all feel. If you don't feel it yet, I know you can. And if you haven't felt it yet, maybe consider the goal. Because there's something in each of us that's pretty cool. Another example that happened about a month ago. I was in town pump. There was only one cashier and there's a pretty long checkout line. Normally, I would just shuffle my feet, stare right at the tile, and be miserable the whole time. But instead, looked at the guy next to me and was like, Hey, you know, another cashier might not be that bad of an idea. Somewhat of a sarcastic, insidious comment, but we sparked up this conversation with this Joe Schmo dude that lasted about five minutes. At the end of the conversation, I seriously wanted to get this guy's number. I didn't know how to ask for the guy's number since I've had more practice asking for girls' numbers. Haven't had a lot of practice receiving those girls' numbers, but I didn't ask for the guy's number just because it didn't really feel like the normal right thing to do. But I had a great conversation with this dude that I just met for five minutes. If I see that guy again, I'm going to be like, yo, gas station dude, what's up? Let's hang out. Those conversations with strangers, man, that shit never happened. Another small thing in emotional sobriety that I'm encountering right now as I record this is I've got a busy day ahead of me. We all have busy days ahead of us. We're all busy, but I'm doing something right now that I am fully enjoying. I am fully in this moment. 
even though there is a laundry list of things that I need to encounter and tackle on the day, some of those may be displeasing. They've got to get done. I know those tasks will still be there later today or tomorrow, but I don't need to think about it and worry and cause unneeded anxiety for myself. I used to not have any chance of enjoying a day unless those important tasks were completed. Now, I don't say these things because I think I'm great. I think I'm freaking awesome. I'm just kidding. I'm far from great. In fact, I'm your Joe Schmo dude who's an alcoholic. I'm extremely average. I'm not even tall. I'm not short. I'm not fat, and I'm not skinny. I like to think I can break dance, but all I can do is just spin around in a cardboard box. I'm an okay dancer. I am Joe Schmo regular dude who has found a way to locate emotional sobriety in recovery. If I just somehow found that medical cure to this problem, I'd probably not be drinking, sure, but I'd still have to suffer, capital S-U-F-F-E-R, through life one day at a time, not fully enjoy life today, this moment, one day at a time. So some of you who are listening to this are thinking about getting sober, and some of you are already sober and looking for new ways to improve your sobriety. If you were thinking about getting sober, I can absolutely tell you that the stick is real. Staying sober is hard work, but the damage from drinking is so much harder to live with. But everyone, let's not forget about that carrot. The emotional sobriety that can follow is where it's at. This experience of full, deep, and abundant life in the process of starting to love ourselves and others might just be what life is all about. That is the gift of emotional sobriety. Now, a lot of sponsors recommend this reading to their sponsees daily. And so maybe page 83 and 84 of the big book say it best. Here's what it says. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and new happiness. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, or elevator, I threw that in, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook on life will change. Fear of people and economic security will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle the situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. I didn't quite realize this, but the majority of that I have memorized. I've read that paragraph so many times that it's ingrained in my head. So with that recovery elevator, let's make this week a carrot week. If anybody happens to be doing anything fun with carrots, like eating carrot cake, maybe juicing a carrot, feeding bunnies, bunnies like carrots, hell, I like carrots, maybe I'm a bunny, but you get the idea. Snap a selfie, email it to me at info at recoveryelevator.com. If you're in the private Recovery Elevator Group accountability page, this amazing community, post that video of you playing Jenga with carrots, or show us that creative outlook that you now have emotional sobriety with your carrot. If you're not in this accountability group on Facebook, it's a private community. I don't even say the word group because what's being created is an amazing community. We're about 250 plus now. And here's a chance for some bonus points. If you're eating carrots as you get off an elevator or maybe taking the stairs back up, you're going to get some bonus points. And now I'd like to introduce our interviewee, Eric. Eric, how are you? I'm great. Thank you. How are you? 
I'm fantastic. Thanks for joining us today on this Monday morning. Hey, I usually start off these recovery elevator interviews with how long have you been sober? But hey, Eric, I'm going to start this one off a little differently because you made me crack up on June 24th at 6.59 a.m. This was in your first 24 hours of sobriety. You emailed info at recoveryelevator.com with your favorite you might be an alcoholic if, which I'm guessing this happened the night before. So here it is, Recovery Elevator. You're going to love this. So you might be an alcoholic if you find yourself making out with some girl on the dance floor, dot, 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 and you're gay. Eric, I loved it. Thank you so much for that. Talk to me about that night. So that was in like your first 24 hours of sobriety. You probably couldn't sleep. It was 6.59 a.m. Just tell me about that night real quick. Yes. Well, I'd, I'd been to a, a club with some friends. Uh, this was a little bit before I'd, I'd really tried to stop drinking. So the, the real kicker is actually the girl was also a lesbian because it was a gay bar. So <laughs> that Damn. was an interesting experience. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty crazy. Uh, I, and I'm generally not much of a partier. I, I'm more of an isolator <laughs> when I drink. So that was a little bit out of the ordinary for me. Definitely. I Towards the end of my drinking, I was definitely an isolator. Didn't really like to go out in the bars and be social. Just drank by myself in my house with a lot of booze. But Eric, let's get into the podcast interview. Are you ready? I am ready. Let's do this. Eric, we found out that on you know June 24th, you had 24 hours of sobriety. Was that your last sobriety date? And so how long have you been sober? So that wasn't my last date. So I'd been drinking you know, on and off, getting a day or two sober for a while. But right now my sobriety date is August 2nd of this year. So I have just over three months, three that months in one week. Awesome. Congratulations, Eric. And talk to me about the podcast title, Recovery Elevator. Tell me about your elevator. Did you reach a bottom? What finally made you on August 2nd to be like, man, I'm done drinking? It was sort of a combination of a lot of things just that piled up. So there was, you know, the fact that I was I was sick and tired of feeling sick and tired every single morning. Boom. Um, yeah. And I, I could tell that the drinking was having an effect on my body. You know, I was gaining weight and yeah, it just wasn't fun. I guess also I realized I, I just wasn't really living and doing the things that I love to do anymore because my entire life revolved around getting home from work and drinking or going to the liquor store to get my wine. It was just a lot of things all added on top of the other, and I, I decided it was just enough. Eric, I wrote down the not living part because this is a matter of life and death, and not so much as in a dramatic fashion with the majority of us, but it's the fact that you're just not living. You're not compiling these memories and life that are going to last a lifetime. But Eric, before we go more into the interview. Give us a background about yourself. Maybe tell us where you're from, what you do for a living, how old you are. Do you have a family, and what do you like to do for fun, Eric? I have lived my whole life in Massachusetts. Uh, I'm currently 25. I work in Boston as a lab technician. I, I work in a virus lab, actually. I do have a family. I'm actually visiting them now uh, for a long weekend. Parents, brother, and a sister. And for fun, I'm, I'm really more of an introvert so i like to do a lot of the quiet things like reading writing painting things like that 
that reading and writing and painting that introvert quality are going to pay dividends in recovery. Cause I wish I was a painter. I wish I was a journaler <laughs> where I could just get all these thoughts and feelings on a canvas or a notebook, but it's, it's tough, but that's going to work well for you and probably already has been. But, uh, Eric, talk to me about your drinking habits. So before August 2nd or maybe June 24th, you know, how much wine did you drink after work? Did you ever put in those rules where you're like, all right, only drinks after 5 p.m. on the weekend. I actually didn't make those rules for myself, like, you know, switching from hard alcohol to wine or something, because I, I pretty much realized early on in my drinking that I was definitely drinking abnormally. And I, I actually came to the conclusion pretty early on that I was an alcoholic. So I was drinking for about four years, I think, maybe like within the first year and a half. Uh, yeah, within that. I was thinking, you know, this is not normal <laughs> and I'll have to stop this eventually, but I guess I just wasn't ready. Yeah. Would you say you took your first drink when, when you took your first drink? Were you alcoholic? When did you start drinking? I started drinking. Um, I was actually studying abroad in Argentina. I was 20 years old, so I was a bit late as far as drinking goes. And I was actually really resistant to it. I was the last person you might expect to drink. I, I always used to say to my parents, like, why would you want to drink something that makes you stupid? I was kind of a, a little turd about it. Uh -huh. So when I took my first drink, it was just, you know, a sex on the beach, kind of a not very strong drink. But by the end of that night, I'd had like, I think it was four or five double shots of tequila. And I kind of hit the ground running my first try. Yeah, big time. So for the rest of that semester in Argentina, I, I was drinking pretty heavily. But then I came back, so I went to Yukon, went back to school, and I actually was able to drink, quote-unquote, average for a lot of that, where it wasn't too frequent. I could have a beer and stop. But then I uh, graduated college and moved to Boston, where I was no longer living with my parents, and that's when it really took off, because I, I guess I didn't have anybody watching over my shoulder. Sure. Yeah, uh, it progressed to drinking, like, every three days to every other day to just every single day. Just out of curiosity, where in Argentina did you study? I was in Buenos Aires. Okay, okay. I did some of my alcoholic drinking in the north of Salta, Argentina. Oh, nice. And gosh, there is a drink native to Argentina, and if you can think of it, it's hard liquor. I'm trying to think. What is that called? It's like on the tip of my tongue. Do you have you any idea what this is? There's... Fernet, it's Fernet. It's Fernet. That's that's exactly oh, it it's exactly what it is. Horrible it, tasting drink. <laughs> it's absolutely miserable. But one of the amends that I need to make is I was in a rental car and I was driving with a girl from Ireland and we were driving through the northern region of Argentina in Salta and we were wine tasting the night before. And what happens when I wake up and I've still got alcohol in my body, I'm an alcoholic. I can't stop drinking. And so at, at the breakfast buffet at this really nice hotel, I literally just walked up behind the bar and poured a drink and nobody saw me do it. But while we were driving back to our, to Salta, we stopped at this like small rest restaurant pits. I have no idea. And I ordered a Fernet and I ordered a double while this girl was in the restroom. And I'm like, I'm like, hurry up, please, please, please hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. Hurry up. They poured a huge glass of Fernet. And I just downed it. And then right when I finished the glass, she walked around the corner and I'm like, you know, juggling my car keys, like tossing them up and down. Like, hey, ready to go? And gosh, that taste was terrible. It's still, I, the whole memory just makes me cringe. But what was it like in Argentina studying abroad with alcohol? I'm sure you're already outside your comfort zone and 
it was probably a good time, right? Yeah. I'm, so for about the first half of the semester, I, I wasn't drinking, but then I, I made some friends who were in the same program as me. So they were Americans. And so after that, I was drinking definitely every weekend. And it was usually clubs, not bars. Sure. More of a club person for that period. And on more than one occasion, on I think two or three occasions, I passed out on the dance floor. <laughs> yeah. One of the times I was actually making out with someone and passed out on top of them. Sure. That's, <laughs> so, that's a move in some countries. Yeah. It, yeah. Well, here, here's a warning because we've got something in common. This is a warning to if you're out there and you, th you think you might have a drinking problem and you're thinking about studying abroad, don't do it. Because, Eric, I, if I could pinpoint the switch, you know, the disease is a progression, but it was when I studied abroad when I was about 20 years old in Spain. That is when I was drinking five to six nights a week, you know, staying up to like four, five, six in the morning, seeing the sun come up, just drinking my face off. And do you think that was kind of, you know, when the progression happened with you? Uh, yeah, well, it definitely progressed during that semester. There was the low note when I got back and then it just picked up where it left off when I moved to Boston, but it was pretty bad. Yeah, no kidding. All right, Eric, talk to me about what it was like around August 2nd. Man, you've done it. You're three months, one week. You're almost to 90 days. This is incredible. Tell me about that. What was it like right after you quit drinking? What was it like when you hit 30 days, and, and how are you feeling now? Yeah, so the, the first week was definitely the hardest. I, I was really just kind of <laughs> white-knuckling it through the, that week because I just needed to get my head clear enough to – I was going to, to meetings every day of that week, but I don't think I picked up anything because I was just in a fog. Uh, but after the first week, I could actually start taking advice. I, I was talking to people, which I was too nervous to do before. First month, I definitely noticed that I was getting my short-term memory back because that was something that really suffered when I was drinking. And working in a lab, I'm a scientist. Like, I, I kind of need my, my memory and my mind. So first month, first two months, just slowly things started coming back. I could think critically. I could do simple math in my head again. It was it was definitely noticeable. And now at three months, I, I feel great. I've been going to meetings frequently. I, I have a sponsor who I meet every week, and we're going to be starting step work. I'm kind of slow getting into the step work, I guess, but... There's uh, no rush there, Eric. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm going slow myself, and that's, that's on purpose. Yeah, but overall, yeah, I feel great now, and I, I look forward to hopefully having even more time and maybe feeling even better because I'm sure it, it just gets better. It does. And let me, let me tell you from firsthand experience, it does get better. And talk to me about this lab in Boston. You work with viruses and I imagine shaky hands would not be a, a good <laughs> attribute to have, or, or you would like with beakers and test tubes and droppers and yeah. And like little pipettes that are dealing with tiny, tiny, tiny volumes of liquid and that was also something the first week. Yeah, I did have some withdrawal symptoms. The shakiness was only a few days. There was a period actually where I never had a seizure, but I was so paranoid. Uh, I'm a little bit of a hypochondriac, so I, I could have sworn I was going to have a seizure at least 10 times during that first week. So I was always on edge. It was an interesting thing. Yeah, definitely. So tell me about your relationships with people before you quit drinking and then after, because drinking affects everybody. It's a family disease. Your friends know it. And they also probably noticed a large difference on after August 2nd. Like, hey, uh, Eric, anything new with you? Is that a new shirt or are you sober? What's going on? Since I was living in Boston away from my family, uh, they didn't really have to see the worst of the drinkings. 
So that was fortunate. But even before I moved out, they definitely did notice that because I was drinking at home, like watching TV or something, and they noticed a big problem. So I told them that I had quit drinking. And they're very optimistic for me, and I'm optimistic as well, because they do notice that, you know, I'm, I'm just more present. I want to talk to you a little bit about genetic makeup. For myself, I am an alcoholic who is an extremely allergic person, pretty much to anything in the animal kingdom. I can't ride a horse. I live in Montana. It's not a good fit. For you, Eric, you're an alcoholic and you're gay. We are in some pretty cool times. So the, the Supreme Court just made a pretty good ruling, and I think the right ruling. This is you know, not the topic, but what is that like, being an alcoholic and being gay? Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, drinking and the whole clubbing scene is, is really big, actually, in, among gay people. I made some friends when I first moved to Boston, it was just a whole bunch of gay people, and they would have stoop parties where you'd basically just drink out on the front stoop. So <laughs> okay. definitely, stoop, yeah. Get, get stooped and stupid. Love yeah, it. exactly. Yeah, so drinking really is a, a big thing, and there are some meetings in Boston that are actually dedicated to LGBT people. And, you know, the, those rooms aren't empty. There there are a lot of people, maybe even disproportionately so, just because of the whole culture. Yeah. yeah. And the thing with this that I have learned is we are all so far from alone. And, Eric, I'd be willing to bet there are more than 50 alcoholics age 25 in the state of Massachusetts that are gay named Eric. I mean, that's just how rampant this is. Believe it or not, I could be wrong. Let's not check the numbers or check the stats, but we're not alone. And when you finally got into those meetings, did you feel the same way that you're not alone? Absolutely. Yeah. Obviously, at first I felt very worried <laughs> that, you know, people would know me or, I don't know, judge me or something. But once I, I went to some of the young people's meetings, actually, also, I felt very welcomed and it was just incredible. There's a meeting near me that regularly has over 100 people attending it, it's incredible just how many people are there and willing to put their hand out and help you eric walk me through that sponsor process you've been sober over three months there's a lot of listeners who are trying to get sober but be kind of quarreling with the thought of getting a sponsor nobody likes that idea but when did you decide like okay i'm gonna get a sponsor and how did you get a sponsor yeah, so it was actually within my first week. Um, one of the meetings I went to, one of the things they do at the end of the, the meeting is they say, you know, please raise your hand or stand up if you'd be willing to take someone on as a sponsor. And someone actually approached me after the meeting and, you know, introduced themselves and said, if I needed any help, then they're available. So I basically agreed to that right away because I'd, I'd heard, I'd been listening to podcasts uh, before trying to get sober, that getting a sponsor is very important because they can help you and they can guide you in your first, you know, couple weeks where, where you're just kind of walking around blind, not knowing what to do. Uh, so I definitely recommend it. Now, how did you, uh, you know, how did you first initiate, you said you're just about to do the step work and how, what have you guys been working on since then? Yeah. So once a week we meet and so far we've just been reading through the chapters of the Alcoholics Anonymous big book. Uh, and he sort of guides me through it, tells me what things are worth underlining and sort of extrapolates on, on what they mean. So I think we're maybe, I don't know, four or five chapters in. So I guess we're going to start actually doing the direct step work very soon. There you go. When the rubber hits the road, the pen hits the paper. 
Eric, talk to me about what your recovery portfolio looks like. What I mean by that is like what types of things make up your recovery? I know you go to AA, you have a 12-step program, you have a sponsor, but what else maybe in your daily routine makes up your recovery portfolio? Uh, one of the most important things I've found actually was to get numbers from people at the meetings and just keep in touch with them, text them, call them, maybe see if they want to hang out, grab coffee and just talk. I think it's really important to talk to other people in recovery because uh, they can have info that you don't have and they can help you. Yeah, in addition to that, I'd, I'd say just meditating, just being able to sit with myself quietly and reflect because I have a very busy mind. <laughs> so it's good to just take some time and relax, just to keep myself sane. What does that look like for you when you meditate? Yeah, I just basically sit in my room, maybe some put some calming music on. And really, I try to think of nothing, because that's hard to come by in my head, <laughs> just to not think. You know, just deep breathing, get your heart rate down and relax. That is something that I have been working on and I'm planning on getting somebody on in the next four or five episodes. Yeah. Who owns a, who runs a meditation studio in Colorado. I'm excited to bring that to the listeners. Eric, we have reached the rapid fire round. Are you ready? I'm ready. Yeah. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Number one, Eric, what was your worst memory from drinking? And it can't involve your June 23rd memory of making out with somebody on the dance floor who was a girl and you're gay. <laughs> Another memory. Yeah, I, I definitely have a lot of memories. Um, it's hard to pick a, a worst one, but one that comes to mind is I, I was still living with my parents at the time and I was, I was drinking at my computer and my brother was playing video games nearby and at, at one point I just kind of passed out. And I remember hearing uh, my brother kind of freaking out in the background and getting my parents and everyone was worried and I think I managed to crawl to a couch and fall asleep. And the entire next day, I just kind of became a hermit. I didn't want to uh, interact with anyone because I was so embarrassed. Number two, Eric, what's your plan in sobriety moving forward? Really, one of the big things that I'm eager to get into is the step work, just to see what it's about, because I, I really don't know too much about it. And so I look forward to working with my sponsor and learning what he knows and next question, Eric, what's your favorite resource in recovery? This can be a book. This can be a 12-step program. Anything you want. One of my biggest resources, in addition to, to meeting people at meetings, has been the recovery podcasts that I listen to. I listen to three, including yours. What are the other ones? And thanks for, thanks for mentioning us. I appreciate it. Yeah. The other ones are Shane Raymer's podcast, That he's, Sober Guy. He's the man. Great guy. I met him in person. <laughs> yeah. and we had lunch together. Awesome dude. Sorry, what's oh, cool. what the third one? Uh, and, um, O's podcast, the share podcast. That's a guy that actually... who I plan to meet in person. He lives in Costa Rica. Okay. <laughs> you can come down with us. <laughs> All right. What were you going <laughs> to no, say though about things. O? Sorry. What were you going to say about O? Oh yeah. His podcast was the first one that I came across. That was probably a few months before I was able to stop drinking. Uh, and I would listen to it every single episode and just, it, it was very helpful. Eric, do me a solid. Oh, Shane and myself, we will be recording like a bonus episode uh, this Sunday, actually. If you could go to recoveryelevator.com and you click on the right-hand side, you can like record a question, any question you got, right? And then we will play that question on the podcast episode. 
and then we'll answer it like oh we'll answer it and then shane will answer it and then i will answer it so it should be pretty cool i'm excited those guys are awesome guys and it's funny we're talking about oh in in costa rica i have actually a gay nightclub story myself i was in a hostel i got in a cab with two guys uh, i was just bored of the hostel and i was like hey guys can i come out with you and on the cab ride to this club, they turn around and they're like, you know we're going to a gay club, right? I'm like, ah, no, I don't, but <laughs> let's check it out. And with all intentions of staying sober, that didn't happen, but I ended up meeting and slash making out with like the hottest girl that I've ever made out with at a bar. So I'm a big fan of gay clubs here, Eric. We're on the same page. <laughs> I love yeah. it. All right, let's get back on track here. My bad. Number four, Eric, in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you have ever received? I'd say it's that you don't have to hit some spectacular traumatic bottom in order to decide to seek recovery because I never got arrested. I never went to the hospital from drinking, but that that's just a yet, I guess. It doesn't have to happen before you can try to get things together in your life. Man, you just nailed it right there. It's the yet scale. And if you can pound that into your brain, because I had to, it's the yet scale. All those fiery car wrecks, the jail, the prison, that's all a yet scale for me, Eric. And I truly believe that. That's not keeping me sober out of fear, but still, it's just a yet thing. I, I, none of that stuff sounds too appealing. It, it doesn't. So good job recognizing that. And last question, Eric, what parting piece of guidance can you give to our listeners who are in recovery or are thinking about quitting drinking? Uh, well, I definitely say find other people who are sober uh, and who can give you advice that maybe you wouldn't otherwise come across because they've been where you are. So they they can help you sort of keep on track and help you to get your life where it needs to be. RNG Recovery Network Group, don't reinvent the wheel is kind of what you're saying there. Get a sponsor. Yeah. That That's just the, the whole point and crux of that. Like your good ideas, and this including myself, my good ideas landed me inside the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. My genius thinking put me in the perplexing legal issues that I was in. And so I don't want to reinvent the wheel. Just go find a guy who's been sober and, and looks like he has what you want and go chat with him. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Yeah. And Eric, I'm going to put you on the spot, even though you gave us a you might be an alcoholic if line. You got to give me another one. This is how we close out all the interviews. Okay. You might be an alcoholic if you need to go to the liquor store, but you don't want your roommates to notice. So you seriously consider uh, jumping out the window from the second floor oh, <laughs> to get outside. Textbook. Textbook. I love it. <laughs> I love it. No, I mean, I've done the same, similar stuff. That's amazing. Great stuff. Eric. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. You might be an alcoholic if, and this one's from Nicholas, you might be an alcoholic if you don't attend any function that doesn't have alcohol. Guilty as charge is Paul. You might be an alcoholic if you dye your hair, but pass out during the process, and then you wake up to find your hair is all burned off. Whoa. That one's from Chris K. This one's from Claire. You might be an alcoholic if you pour a little Diet 7-Up out of your 20-ounce bottle and fill it up with vodka because you think no one will know. This one's also from Claire. 
You might be an alcoholic if you call in sick to work, but you show up for work. Your boss asks what you're doing at work because you called in, and then you realize you called out in a blackout. Yeah, you're probably an alcoholic with that one. You might be an alcoholic if you keep a notepad by the phone so you can take notes during your drunk dialings. That's hilarious, Claire. This one's also from Claire. So you're now sober, but you know that you're an alcoholic if you want to wear a sign on your t-shirt that says you are enjoying a piece of gum to merely blow bubbles, not to cover up that vodka smell. You might be in recovery slash still an alcoholic. Send us your customized you might be an alcoholic if line to info at recoveryelevator.com. Now, I'm a firm believer that in recovery, there has to be humor. Just in general, life is better with humor and laughter. But your personalized you might be an alcoholic if line, it doesn't have to be funny but it does need to be true. For example, here's one of mine. You might be an alcoholic if, when you're standing on a seventh floor balcony in Spain, the thought of jumping over that balcony onto the street is more appealing than just living your life and moving forward. A little perilous, bleak, and dismal, I know, but that was my life. But with emotional sobriety, I have found another way to live. That holy buckets recovery elevator, it's amazing. Not every day, not at all times, but I'm a firm believer from a quote that came out of one of my favorite movies called Vanilla Sky, it's not Tom Cruise who said it, it's that other guy, is you gotta know the sour to know the sweet. And feeling the sour is a must. You have to just sit and feel that sour before you can even know what the sweet feels like. So we know how to close this baby out, Recovery Elevator. You took the elevator down, you gotta take the stairs back up. Feel free to eat a carrot on your way back up, but you 